My name is Neil Pitchell, and uh, I'm here this morning hoping that our study so far in Exodus has debunked the idea that the Old Testament is about a stern God who only punishes those who fail to obey him, while the New Testament is all about grace and a gracious God who forgives those who couldn't possibly obey the law. But God's freeing Israel from slavery and his gracious response to their grumbling, complaining, and lack of faith was pure grace. And it doesn't stop there. God's next step in his gracious dealings with Israel come in chapter 19 as he brings them to Mount Sinai, graciously fulfilling the promise that he made to Moses in chapter 3, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, and we'll remember what God promised here. If you don't, the verses will be up on the screen. Chapter 3, verse 12, God said, but I will be with you, and you shall be the, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Israel was not simply freed from slavery. They were given a purpose. They were rescued in order to serve God and to worship him. And it is here that they will find out exactly what that means. Chapter 19 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament because in it, God confirms the covenant that he has made with Israel to be their God and for them to be his special people. Chapter 19 is also the preamble to the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law given by God to Israel through Moses. We have to understand what God is saying here in chapter 19 in order to understand how the commandments apply to Israel and why they still apply to us today. In fact, what Exodus 19 and 20 say about the relationship between grace and law is exactly how God relates to his New Testament church. Well, first I want to bring you up to date what's been happening before chapter 19. In the first 18 chapters of Exodus, we're given the miraculous story of God's freeing Israel from Egypt after 430 years. And much of that time, Israel spent as slaves. In chapter 2, we see that God heard their cries. He, he knew their suffering. So in his mercy, he rescued them. He did for them what they could possibly do for themselves. He freed them from slavery. And then, in the wilderness... He protected them and provided for them. With Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They received food from the sky and, and water from a rock. And despite their almost constant grumbling and complaining, after three months, they arrive at Mount Sinai and they're about to receive the law to teach them how it is they are to worship and serve God. See, God had told Moses right from the beginning 
back in chapter 3, that that was his aim in sending him down to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of his people. And then for the next 15 chapters, God consistently reveals to Israel that he is saving them in order to worship him. He said, I will bring you out of slavery to worship by my mountain. And now here in Exodus 19, because of God's miraculous intervention, that's right where they are, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it is here that God is about to give them in great detail how they are to live now that he's rescued them from slavery. This is God's amazing grace to Israel. Before giving them the law, he frees them from bondage. He does it all. He defeats Pharaoh. He makes a mockery of the Egyptian gods. Now all Israel has to do is gather up their goods along with great wealth given to them by the Egyptians and they simply walk out. This amazing covenant relationship which he is about to confirm with Israel is a gracious relationship. Israel didn't earn it, nor did they deserve it. It was a gift of God's grace. And in order to confirm without a doubt that the basis of this relationship is grace, God gives them three important things that they are to remember before he gives them the law. And we find those in chapter 19, verses one through four. So if you switch over to chapter 19, I'm gonna read those first four verses. It says, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God gives them three things that they are to remember. First, it was his judgment of Egypt. They need to remember that what God did to Egypt could just as easily have been done to them. He had every right to punish Israel just as he had punished Egypt for their sin, for their lack of trust in him, for their grumbling. The difference between Israel and Egypt was not that Israel was any better than Egypt. It was that Egypt got what they deserved for their sin. Justice, a, a just punishment. Israel got what they didn't deserve despite their sin. They got mercy. They got grace. Now, secondly, he says he, he bore them on eagles' wings. Uh, that's a, a metaphor in Scripture for God's uh, nurture and, and tender care for his people. And the reason for that is that uh, apparently uh, eagles uh, stay, baby eagles stay in the nest a lot longer than most birds. Uh, they're very, very vulnerable when they're born. So uh, mom protects them, and then when she believes they're ready to fly, she simply drops them out of the nest. They don't know how to fly at that point, so she sweeps down underneath them and catches them on her wings and brings them back up to the nest. And she'll do that until they've learned how to fly. 
Well, that's exactly what God did for Israel. They were incredibly vulnerable in the wilderness. They were vulnerable to starvation. They were vulnerable to thirst. They were vulnerable to the Egyptian army and other tribes like the Amalekites as they traveled. But God protected them and he wanted them to remember that. And then finally, um, he reminds them that he didn't just rescue them and say, okay, you're free, best of luck, hope all goes well. The Yiddish term for it would be gegesund, uh, go and be well. No, he, he brought them to himself. He led them by day a pillar of cloud and by night a pillar of fire and he led them to himself. He didn't wait for them to find their own way. The Exodus wasn't just about getting their freedom from slavery and figuring out what to do next. No, God said it was about getting to know him. It was about learning how to worship him, learning how to serve him, and learning how to live for him. Their redemption from slavery was not an end in itself because in addition to freedom, they got a special relationship with the creator king of the universe. God's deliverance from slavery wasn't just about freedom. It was about adoption. He brought them out and carried them through the wilderness to bring them to himself because he had declared them as his special people. It, it was critical for God to remind them that he had treated them in grace, that he had protected them and brought him brought them to himself before giving them the law. He wanted them to clearly understand that his choosing them as his special people was not contingent upon their ability to keep the law. They were already his people by virtue of his gracious choice to love them and because he was fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham. Now the next verse kind of presents a little bit of a problem because it sounds like it's the exact opposite of what I've just been talking about for the last five minutes. Look at 19 verse 5. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. It sounds as if it's saying the exact opposite of what I've been saying. It seems to say that they have to obey as a condition for them to be recipients of God's special grace. But this is being said to a people that have already been redeemed from slavery. Israel had been delivered from slavery thanks to God's power and the blood of the Passover lamb. They had been protected and provided for and brought close. Therefore, the if in verse five is invitational, not conditional. What it, what it means is that now that I freed you, now that I have called you my people and, and brought you close, if you want to experience the blessings of being freed, here's what you need to do. You need to obey my voice and keep my covenant. Do you see how important the order of the Exodus was? First, he frees them from slavery. Then he tells them they must obey his law. If it had been the other way around, if first, as a condition of their freedom, the people of Israel had to obey God's law, they'd still be there. there. There would be no Israel. 
But God is a God of grace, just as much in the Old Testament as he is in the New. So first, he graciously saves them out of slavery. Then he calls them to obey his law, which when you think about it, is exactly what happens to us as Christians. God saves us in grace. He, he plucks us out of slavery to sin and death. And then, in his word, by his spirit, he teaches us how to live for him. God saves us in Christ and then teaches us how to live for Christ. So although they were saved by grace, there was responsibility on the part of Israel to respond with obedience to God's gracious act of redemption, just as there is a responsibility on us today to obediently respond to God's word. What God is saying in verse 5 is that if we want to have the intimacy and the closeness of the relationship that comes with him, we, we need to do what he says. But, but I want you to know there's, there's more to what God is saying in verse 5 than just there is blessing for obedience. The term that he uses there means that they must fully and completely obey all of his statutes. Uh, it's, it's the same words that are used in chapter 15, verse 26, when God first brings them out of the wilderness into Marah. He, he says to them at that point, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. In other words, for Israel to keep their end of the bargain, they would have to obey perfectly. In his eternal justice and perfect holiness, God must demand perfect obedience in order to be in a right relationship with him, which of course is a condition Israel, nor anyone else for that matter, could possibly keep. What God is doing here is showing them as they struggled and failed to keep the law perfectly, they would realize their continued need for grace because they couldn't fulfill their covenant responsibility to keep the whole law. They would need someone who could do it for them. They couldn't keep their covenant responsibility by keeping the law because they couldn't obey it all. In fact, they couldn't keep their covenant responsibility by virtue of their birth either. They were not in a right relationship with God because they were born as a people of Israel. And God made that very clear to them at the very beginning of the covenant in the story of Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were the grandsons of Abraham. They were twins. They were in the womb together when God said to Rebekah, their mother, on Jacob, I give my special relationship. He is the recipient of my special blessing and not Esau. God was revealing very clearly because they hadn't done anything good or bad yet and because they were from the same parents in the same womb that it wasn't by what they did and it wasn't by where they were born or who were their parents that allowed them to be in a right relationship. It was simply God's grace to choose Jacob. One of the gracious components of the law was to point Israel to their inability to keep it all so that they would recognize their need for a savior 
who could. In Psalm 19, David says, the law is perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's true. And it's righteous altogether. But he also says in verse 11, that by it, your servant is warned. God is warning Israel of their inability to keep the whole law, to show them their need for an everlasting Savior. People ask me, as a, as a Jewish person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, how were Jews saved in the Old Testament? Simply because God in grace revealed to those in the Old Testament who he was going to save that they would have to look to him in faith to provide the ultimate solution, a Savior who could keep the law perfectly. God was showing them, even though he had freed them physically from slavery in Egypt, they still needed a Savior who could keep the covenant perfectly and completely for them. So for anyone in Israel, prior to the coming of Jesus, in order to be saved, just like Abraham, who received righteousness, was given a right relationship with God because he believed God's promise that a descendant of his in the future would be a blessing to all nations. In, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God said that Abraham would be a blessing because he said, I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham understood and believed God's promise that in the future, all families on the earth would be blessed through his descendant. Israel now must see that they couldn't possibly fulfill all of the law, and therefore they must believe God's promise that he would provide the solution. Those men and women in faith in the Old Testament could only look forward to God's promise without knowing exactly who would fulfill that promise. But we can look back. We know it was Jesus. He was the only one who could fulfill all the requirements of the law, and he did so. And in addition, he suffered the penalty for our inability to keep the law. Our relationship with God today is unconditional because Jesus kept all the conditions of God's perfect justice. So God's chosen people in the Old Testament are not saved because of their birth. They were not saved because of what they could do. They were saved because of what was done for them. And then in, in verse 6, God says, there's still responsibility. Even though you can't fulfill the law perfectly, you're not to just throw up your hands and say, what's the use? We might as well do whatever we want to do. No, he says there's a responsibility. Look at verse 6, chapter 19. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is true for the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that there is a responsibility to live in a way that demonstrates that we are a special people, a holy nation. 
And what's interesting is the Apostle Peter quoted this verse almost verbatim in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter said this, But you are a chosen race, speaking to the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But Moses and Peter are showing us the same thing. There is a way for, to for a person to live who has been the recipient of such great grace. Both in the Old and in the New Testament, God saves a people for himself in grace so we will respond in holiness and be a witness to the goodness and mercy of God that we've experienced, the incredible gift that we have in him. Now, before God is going to give them the commandments, he tells the Moses that he's going to come and meet with the people. God is going to appear to them. And therefore, they need to prepare. God is, is so perfectly holy uh, that it's not safe to just barge into his presence. Uh, they needed to prepare for his visit. So the next eight verses, uh, chapters 19, 7 through 15, uh, describes how they were to prepare in order to come into the presence of the king. And what he was told is that they needed a mediator. They needed someone to communicate to them on their behalf. And of course, that is Moses. So first he tells them they have to consecrate themselves. Uh, they have to wash their clothes. Uh, it's just a symbol of the uh, purity that's necessary to come into the presence of God. And, and then he says something that's interesting. He says, for the next three days, you need to abstain from sexual relations. Not that there's anything wrong with sex in the context of marriage, but it, it's a form of fasting. God is saying, I want all distractions out of the way so you can focus on what I have to say to you. The king of the universe is coming for a visit how many of you have seen uh, the movie Downton Abbey? Anybody? <laughs> Afraid to raise your hands. Thank you, Mrs. Miller. Um, well, I, I've n I never watched any of the 57 uh, seasons that were on before the movie came out. Um, but, but my wife, Kate, really enjoyed it. She watched every single episode. And when the movie came out, she said, boy, I'd really like, like to see the movie. And being the amazing husband that I am, um, I said, okay, let's, let's do it. And the movie was actually pretty good. Uh, but what struck me was that more than half of the movie was about the people working at the Abbey preparing for the visit of the King of England. It took half the movie for them to prepare for this visit. Israel was being prepared for the visit of the king of the universe. This was really important. And then the next seven verses, the rest of the chapter, reveals the awesomeness of God's presence as he appears to them. You see, throughout the Exodus, God has been giving Israel a progressive revelation. Uh, he's been revealing new things about himself all along. See, they had been in, in slavery for, for hundreds of years. They didn't know this God well. So what God does is first he reveals them as a, to them as a God of justice. He destroys Israel's crops, their cattle, and, and their firstborn. Then he reveals himself as a God of grace. He provides them a substitute to protect them from the destroyer. 
then, then he reveals himself as the God who heals, calls himself Jehovah Rophe. He's a restorer of life. He took what was bitter and undrinkable and made it healthy. And then he reveals himself as Jehovah Jireh. He provides them manna and quail to eat and water from a rock. And then he reveals himself as Jehovah Nisi. God is my banner as he protects them from the attack of the Amalekites. And now here, despite their grumbling and complaining, here with thunder and lightning and smoke and the blast of a trumpet, he reveals just how awesome he is. The theological word is, is transcendence. He is transcendent, meaning he is separate and he's holy, distinct and exalted above everything that he's made. While at the same time, he reveals his imminence. That theological word means his closeness by coming down to speak to them. He is separate and holy and distinct, yet he is willing to stoop down to appear among his people. He is exalted above all he's made, yet he is intimately involved in everything that happens to his people. He is powerful beyond measure, but he is also personal. God is giving them a picture of what Isaiah will describe about 700 years later when he says, the Messiah who to come, his name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us, so that the people would recognize him as a better mediator than Moses. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And then Paul's letter to Timothy, he says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, Moses could only make them wash their clothes in order to consecrate themselves to be ready for the appearance of God. But Jesus consecrates us by means of his perfect sacrifice at the cross of Calvary. And it is Jesus who perfectly displays both the transcendence, the awesomeness of God, and the imminence, the personal nature of God, when he left the glory of heaven to come and be one of us. Well, now that, that God has established that the covenant relationship is based on grace and that they as his people have a purpose to live as a holy nation, he, he's ready to reveal to them his law. And these commands that are found in chapter 20 called the Ten Commandments are probably the most well-known set of laws in all of Western history. They were not only supernaturally engraved in stone, but God spoke these words directly to the people of Israel. They heard his voice. He wanted them to know for absolute certain that these were not Moses' laws. These were coming from him. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20, again, God reminds them how powerfully he's acted on their behalf before giving them the law. 
Chapter 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He is reminding them that he kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them into a nation. He's reminding them that he has singled them out from all the other peoples on the earth to be his special people, and now he's giving them the owner's manual on how to live. He has showed them much about himself in those first three months since leaving Egypt, and now by giving him these commandments, he's revealing his holy character of love, and he is showing his people how they are to fill their purpose to be holy by living lives of love and righteousness. These commandments deserve our close attention even today because they spell out how a people saved by grace are to live in order to reveal to the world around us the nature of this great God. Jesus confirmed the unchanging, universal force of God's moral law spelled out here in these Ten Commandments when he summarized the greatest of all the commandments, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. These two commandments are fleshed out in the Ten Commandments given here at Mount Sinai. The first three teach us the highest priority, and that is how to love God. In verses 4 through 7, God tells us specifically how that's to happen. He says we're to have no other gods before him. We're not to make for ourselves a, a carved image of, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what God is saying is, in order to love him, we need to worship him above all else. We are not to worship any created thing. We are not to create any kind of idol in our lives that is placed above our relationship to God. Whether it is success or education, or position, or family, whatever it is, God says, you have no other gods before me. You make me the highest priority. That's how you love me. And then he says, in order to love me, in the second commandment, you have to worship me as the true God in the right way. You can't worship me by means of some image. In fact, that's why God, when he appeared to Israel here in chapter 20 to reveal these laws, he did it audibly so they could hear his voice and not see an image. It's just that we are to worship him the way he reveals himself. And the way he reveals himself to us today is in his word. You've probably heard the term, oh, my God would never do that. Well, typically, that God is not the God who revealed himself. We are to worship him as he teaches us to in his word. And then thirdly, he says we're not to take his name in vain. We're, we're literally to hallow his name. His name is a, is a representation of his sovereign authority. It's, it's a picture of who he is. And when we take that name thoughtlessly or carelessly or in vain then we aren't demonstrating our love for him. So we do so by, by holding his name 
holy. And then in, in verse 8, he gives us the, the fourth commandment to keep, keep the Sabbath day holy. That commandment is, is for us to be able to take a time to, to rest and reflect and remember all that God has done for us. Not only is it good for us, but it's a way to honor him. And then, then the last six commandments are how we are to love one another, how we are to love each other. And it starts with the family. It starts with honoring our parents. God places our relationship in our family as the highest priority. And, and then he says that, uh, that we're not to murder. Obviously, if we're to love our neighbors, we can't be taking their life. Jesus even amplifies it, of course, by saying we can't even hate them. And then he says that we're, we're not to commit adultery. We're to, we're to be faithful to our commitments, especially to our spouses. And then he says we're not to steal. We want to love each other. We don't take what belongs to someone else. And he says we're, we're not to bear false witness. We're not to lie. We're to be people of integrity. We're to be people that can be trusted by what we say. Uh, in one of the great verses in the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 6, 8, God says, He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. When we speak the truth, we act justly. And then he says, finally, that we're not to covet our, our neighbor's things. We're not to, to jealously desire what our neighbor has and to look down on them, uh, we're to be happy for them. We're to be appreciative that they have what they have and that God has given us what we need, and that should be enough. Now, there, there is some sentiment in the evangelical church today that these Old Testament commands are no longer for, for the church, um, and I totally disagree with that. Um, in Malachi chapter six, verse eight, God, uh, verse Malachi chapter three, verse six, um, says, "I, the Lord, do not change." Well, these ten commandments express God's unchanging character, which means they don't change. It means they are always in effect, which means they are always binding. So, a proper understanding of these commandments was not just for Israel; they are essential. For a healthy Christian life. They teach us how to walk in grace. They teach us how to love God and to love each other. And they reflect God's character. And they always will. These laws are not restrictive. And they are not an enemy of freedom. In fact, they teach free people how to live and how to be related to God and others without sin getting in the way. It's a loving father's instructions to his children on how to live. When, when Jesus was meeting with his disciples in the upper room, right before he's arrested and eventually executed, he gathers them together to give them his final words of instruction. I mean, these are big. In, in John chapter 14, three different times in the upper room, right before he's arrested, he says to them, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. 
the expression of loving him that Jesus most wanted to see from his disciples was obedience to his commands. Because we are saved by grace, we are free, not so we can live any way we want or, or so that we will live the way we used to, but so that we will live as free people saved by grace who reflect this great God who did what he did for us. You see, Israel knew exactly what they had to be thankful for. They had been freed from slavery in an oppressive society. They were like a newborn who had come out of the womb of slavery in Egypt, through the waters of the promised land, taken into the desert to be shaped into a people who knew their God, and now they are given these commandments so they would know how to live as a people freed by God's grace. As Christians, we have been saved from the penalty of sin and death by God's grace, by the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. We have been saved from sin which earns us death, eternal separation from God. By grace, we have been brought from death to life. By grace, our destiny has been changed from hell to heaven. By grace, we have received an inheritance that is imperishable. We were not only saved from sin and misery, we've been saved for the purpose of living a life of obedience so that we might be salt and light to a dark and, and dying world. Uh, when I uh, was in college, I had a lot of different jobs, and one of them was uh, as a bartender. And um, one of the first things I did when I came in was I filled the, the jars on the, on the counter of peanuts and, and uh, pretzels and all kinds of salty stuff for free, free. I thought, boy, the guys who run this place are really nice guys not being smart enough to realize that they were providing salty snacks to make them thirsty. Our responsibility as those saved by grace are to create thirst in a dark and dying world. Jesus said it this way in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. He said, you, speaking about us, are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill and cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's our responsibility. That's our purpose. We all, regardless of how old, regardless of where we are in our position in life, we all have that purpose to be salt and light to a dark and thirsty world. Now, maybe you're here today and you've, you've always thought that because you were born in a Christian family, that, of course, I'm, I'm a Christian. Or maybe because you know that your good works outweigh your bad. I hope that you've seen today that neither of those is a possible way 
to be in a right relationship with God. The only way is to recognize that there is no way and that God has provided that way and that is Jesus. That he came and fulfilled every component of the law and he paid the price for those of us who couldn't. And when we believe that, he said, now you are my special people. You are mine. And now here is the word of God and here is the spirit of God so that you can live in a way that honors the great gift that you've received. I pray that we would leave here today with that purpose, excited to be salt and light in a dark world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of salvation that we have in Christ and in him alone. I thank you for the story of exodus and redemption and grace that you gave to Israel as a picture of what was to come and that you revealed to them that they couldn't possibly fulfill their end of the covenant and that they must look forward to the one who we know is Jesus. And Lord, as we look back to what he's done on our behalf, let us live in such a way that people will see who we are and give glory to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.